All right. Well, welcome. Today we are concluding the series that we've been in called Answered Prayers, kind of looking at uh, this topic of how God answers prayer, what prayer is, and what it can look like in our lives. And this isn't a new topic for us at ECC. This church was built on prayer over the last several years. In fact, if you've been around at all since the fall, you've probably picked up on the fact that we're celebrating 10 years of being a church Together, God orchestrated this little group of of folks who stepped out 10 years ago into what seemed like an impossible situation and into things that were way too big to be realistic. And when you attend our Explore membership class, which we have another one coming up here at the beginning of March, you'll hear Chris tell all these stories of the early years, of those first days. And one of my favorites is Chris, uh, the story is Chris getting the message that the trailer of stuff that we would need to be a portable church was all out in the parking lot. So we rushed out there and out there he saw this enormous trailer just full of stuff, huge and heavy. And he looked at his little sedan and realized, oh my goodness, I I can't even do this. I can't even pull the, the stuff we need to be the church to go to even our location. This is impossible. Right from the beginning, it was obvious that the only way this is going to happen was if God was in it. And so it drove Chris and Laura and that band of, of early people to their knees in prayer. Some of you in this very room to your knees. In fact, everybody who was a leader back in that stage of ministry, everyone who was a leader of a ministry became automatically part of the prayer team because we knew that we needed it. Prayer wasn't optional. It was central. It reminds me of the old Abraham Lincoln quote on prayer. He said, I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. And early on in the days of ECC, there were so many incredible stories of God providing miraculously spaces that shouldn't have been available like Chippewa Middle School and then the Shoreview Community Center that God opened up and made available for us. Because our needs were so great and our resources were so few, it was obvious that we needed God and it was obvious when God provided. And now 10 years later, God has blessed us so richly with you. With this room full of people that are remarkable, amazing leaders with so many gifts and talents. We have an awesome staff and an elder board and a PRC and there's so many programs and events. And we have an actual constitution as a church. Like, we're a real church now. We're like, know what we're doing, kind of. It's incredible. But at the same time, I think it would be easy to look at all those people and all those resources and all those systems. And I feel like maybe we could just do this on our own now. Like, thanks for getting us started, God. And we'll take it from here. But the truth is, of course, as we've grown, as we take on new challenges as a church, as we figure out what's the next chapter for us as a church, we're not going to be less dependent. We're going to be more dependent on God to provide and to lead and to to guide us and to protect us. As we figure out as a church and as a denomination, what's next for us? We'll need it more than ever before. It just won't be as obvious that we need it. And so today we're asking this question, why do we pray as a church? How do we pray as a church? What does it mean to be a praying church? And how do we not lose that practice of prayer that was so needed and so central back when we started, but maybe now it doesn't feel quite so obvious? When I was a kid, I remember this picture was up on the wall of my grandparents' house. You see that everyone, this is a familiar picture. We've probably all seen that at some point. I'm guessing that for many of us, when we see this picture or when we hear the word prayer, when we think about what prayer is, it's, it's something like this comes to mind, a, a picture like this. And it's somber and it's silent and it's solitary. He even looks a little cold in the flannel there. And certainly scripture contains all kinds of stories, all kinds of admonitions and teachings about going and, and finding a place to be alone and to spend time alone with God, 
But that doesn't mean that prayer is fundamentally a solitary act. In fact, I would argue, and this is a place, there's a place in your notes for this. Prayer is fundamentally relational. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 wrote these words. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Defining it already as a relationship. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. We are no longer slaves. Rather, the Spirit you received brought you about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit who brought us into our adoption, into this relationship, and by whom we are able to call God Father, Abba, Father. But more than that, continuing in the next verse, it says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Of God, He's saying the Holy Spirit actually prays on our behalf for us when we don't know words. When there are no words to speak, but we need to speak to God, the Holy Spirit speaks them for us and helps us to speak. And then he goes on to say that even Jesus Christ himself is interceding for us as well. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Megan Hill, uh, who's the, the wife of a covenant pastor out uh, on the East Coast, recently wrote a book called Praying Together, and she paraphrased this beautifully. She said, prayer is an activity of relationship. Our relationship with God, who is three in one, assures us that all three will involve themselves in our praying making the prayers of a Christian part of a grand heavenly conversation. I love that picture. So when we pray, even when it's just us, it's never really just us. It's us and the God who is himself three people who is hearing the voices that we raise, but also the voices of believers everywhere around the world. And we are one of a multitude of voices that are being raised to the very throne of God. And yet he hears each so if that's true, why do we actually need to pray together? Like, why do we actually need to pray in proximity with one another? I mean, isn't it enough for us to simply be a group of believers in Jesus who are all praying individually, who rather, rather randomly come together to worship or to service or other things? Wouldn't that be enough? Well, not according to Scripture. While there's lots of examples of Scripture of people going off and praying as individuals, there are far more examples of, of God's people coming together to lift their voices in prayer. When Jesus talked about prayer, it was almost always plural. It was almost always a group activity together. As Chris pointed out a couple weeks ago, when Jesus was teaching on prayer in the Lord's Prayer, the language that he chose to use was all plural. It was our Father, not my Father. It was give us our daily bread, not give me what's mine. It was lead us not into temptation. Forgive us. It's all plural language. Jesus taught that prayer is plural. It's almost always that way when Jesus talks about it, in fact. Certainly we see him going away and, and praying on his own, and we see others doing that, but when he taught about it, when he talked about it, it was almost always plural. And we sometimes miss it. For instance, in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching about prayer, and he, and he says these words that probably many of us have heard. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And you is the sticking point there. In modern English, we don't have, uh, there's no distinction between singular and plural in the second person pronoun you. Although in almost every other language in the world and in history, there was and is a distinction. And because we live in a very individualistic society, when we hear these words, we hear you, ask Greg, and you, ask and you, ask and you will receive. But Jesus was talking to a crowd, and this is pearly, saying, people, ask together as a community, and you will receive. He's urging the gathering of believers to ask, seek, and knock. In almost every instance where Jesus teaches about prayer, it's about praying together in community, praying as a church. In fact, for Jesus, church was defined as a place of prayer. There's a story in Matthew 21 that we're probably all familiar with. Jesus has come to Jerusalem and he goes to the temples and in the temple courts, he finds these money changers and he finds people selling things and all this religious paraphernalia and dubs for sacrifices and money changers who would get your money ready so that you could give sacrifices and they're skimming a little bit off the top and all of it's kind of dirty. And what is my, clearly my favorite story from when I was a kid, Jesus like just starts busting stuff up and turning tables and it was awesome, right? This is Jesus superhero. And then what does he say? He says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you're making it into a den of robbers. For Jesus, the temple, the central location of their faith, the, the world headquarters of their faith, the megachurch of megachurches, was to be a house of prayer. And I think that would have been a, something of a strange message, perhaps, for them. I mean, certainly they thought of it as a place of honor, a place of worship, a place of sacrifice, a place where they would come and hear from the learned teachers. But a place of prayer? I think they would have said, well, yes, but, but probably more like the active things that we do while we're here. How about us? If aliens landed, I'm not sure why that's a helpful device for me. <laughs> but if aliens landed and came on a Sunday morning and observed what we do, what would they see? What would they observe? I think they'd see a place of music. They'd see a place of Worship, they'd see a place of teaching and practical life help and community and friendship and service to one another and to the community. And all of those are wonderful, amazing things. But is it a place of prayer? I think we have to at least ask that question. It wasn't a question for the early church. They knew the answer to that question. The, the book of Acts contains all these stories and story after story after story. You see the church praying Together, right at the beginning of the book, there's 120 followers of Jesus who gathered prayerfully and, and scared and not knowing what's next. But they're all in this room together praying and the Holy Spirit descends on them in what is known as Pentecost. The disciples prayed for wisdom in knowing who Judas's replacement should be. They, they prayed together at shared meals. They prayed together daily in the temple. It says when they were being uh, persecuted by the Sanhedrin and by all these other people, they prayed and God shook the earth. He shook the very foundation Around them, and there's stories of jails being broken free and earthquakes and all these miraculous things. And not once in any of those first several chapters does it mention any apostle or believer's personal prayers. It's always about them praying together. I'm not saying they didn't pray as individuals, but the author found it more important, most important, 
to talk about the times they came together to pray and what God did in the midst of those circumstances. Throughout the whole book, the early Christians gathered for the purpose of prayer. And when they did, God did amazing things. Do we? Do we gather for the express purpose of prayer? Or does prayer sometimes feel like it's optional? Like it's an add-on in our lives, and it's even an add-on sometimes in our worship services. The thing we do to transition to the next thing we're doing in our worship services. If prayer was this central to the early church, should it perhaps be more central, at least for us, in our religious practices? And again, I'm asking as the guy who crafts these services. (laughs) Like, I'm saying maybe we should do some more prayer together. And yet, before we get too hard on ourselves, I want to point out that there are many ways that we are, in fact, praying together regularly. We may not totally be aware of it. When we came in this morning, we started off the morning in prayer, not just the words that Christy spoke on your behalf. You spoke words of prayer. Let me read them to you. You you prayed, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before the opening To the sun above. Those are words. That's a prayer. That's adoration and thanksgiving. And it even goes on to supplication. Listen to these words. You spoke. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. Those are profound words. That we spoke to God as a community. As a congregation. We didn't speak them. We sang them. But this is prayer. This is corporate prayer. We sang this prayer then. I believe in God, our Father. I believe in Christ, the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. That's prayer. That's adoration. That's thanksgiving. That's that's looking forward, hopefully, to the resurrection that will come because we believe in the power of the name of Jesus. That's right. We spoke these words. We said, you hold the reins of the sun and the moon like horses driven by kings. You cover the mountains, the valleys below with the breadth of your mighty wings. All treasures of wisdom and things to be known are hidden inside your hand. And in this fortunate turn of events, you ask me to be your friend. These are words that you spoke minutes ago. That already sounded a little familiar, unfamiliar coming out of my mouth. When finally we sang, you've come to bring peace, to be love, to be nearer to us. You've come to bring life, to be light, to shine brighter in us. Oh, Emmanuel, God with us, our deliverer, you are savior. In your presence, we find our strength over everything, our redemption. God with us, you are God with us. All these words that we sang this morning were prayer. Worship is prayer. Or maybe I should say worship can be prayer. Were you praying or were you just singing? There's a difference. We can come in here and we can sing these words. And I think far too often I'm unaware of the words I'm even singing. I'm remembering the melody. I'm thinking about the harmony. I'm thinking about the person next to me. We can raise, or if we're conscious of it, if we're aware of it, we can raise our voices together and declare these truths of who God is as a prayer of adoration and thanksgiving. We can together raise our voices in thanksgiving. It's prayer if we allow it to be. 
if we engage in it as prayer. And I think when we do, then we are a house of prayer. Or it can just be music. And then if it's just music, then it's subject to preferences and styles. It's all about, you know, who the leader is and what the song is and who the arrangement is. If it's just music, then you can just stand there and evaluate or watch. It's just entertainment. And it can be evaluated as such. And that's fine. I'm not, I'm, truly, that sounded way more judgmental coming out of my mouth than I thought it would. (laughs) I'm not judging that. I'm just saying, if that's what it is, then you're missing out on so much. You're missing out on the opportunity to join with these other voices and declare praise to God, to go into the very throne room of God together, which is so much cooler than this space. But if you did, if you did sing, and if you did sing as, as an act of conscious and expression of adoration to God, then you got to participate in a chorus of voices speaking these truths about God to God and to those around you. Maybe your wife and your kids. You just prayed as a family. Well done. Your family is learning to pray by watching you engage in this way of prayer. And that's huge. Or maybe it was your roommate or your friend who's with you today. Or maybe it's the person sitting next to you who's here today and simply can't pray because of the circumstances in their life, because of a history of damage, whatever it is. For some reason, they are here and they simply cannot raise their voice. But you can, on their behalf, to speak these words of truth over them, with them, to God and about God. When we come to big church and sing these songs, it can be, it's meant to be, prayer. And I, the person who plans these services, needs to be reminded of that. We can speak to God corporately with one voice. And it's important to realize that just as we speak to God corporately with one voice and and say these truths together, God also speaks to us corporately. There's a place for that in your notes. One of the reasons we need each other as a body of Christ in community with one another is that God gives a little bit to you and a little bit to you and a little bit to you. And then he invites us to bring those together to discern with the Holy Spirit. What is it that God is leading and how is God speaking to us as a community? It's like each person gets a little bit of the picture. and We get to bring all those pieces together into a mosaic of what God is doing. Everyone's needed and everyone's important. Megan Hill, who I quoted earlier up front, goes even further to say that everyone is needed and that prayer is something everyone can do. It's not fancy, it's not glamorous, but it's crucial and everybody is on equal ground when we're together on our knees. There's no more important prayers than anyone else. She writes, corporate prayer is valuable work that every believer can participate in. Sadly, even in the church, we sometimes value people who do things over those who can't. We value the 20-something college-educated woman who rescues sex-trafficking victims over the seven-year-old widow in a suburban nursing home. We value artists and organizers and big thinkers over children with disabilities. But corporate prayer is valuable work for everyone in Christ's church. The hosannas of children are no less precious to Christ than the eloquent praises of adults. When everyone, no matter their age, no matter their gender, no matter their ability or disability, comes together and prays, we are a house of prayer. 
That's one of the reasons I love this concept that we've been rolling out and experiencing for the first time this year in, in small church. When we gather together on Sundays, we call this big church. And then when we gather together during the week, throughout the week, in homes and in apartments and in offices, we call that small church. And prayer is central to what it is to be in small church together. Big church on Sundays gives us all kinds of opportunities to pray together in adoration and thanksgiving, to sing these prayers together, to be led in prayer by one or two individuals, and even do corporate confession as we do every time we do communion, where we say, forgive us for these things for which we are. But there are also prayers that happen best in small groups where we can open up with one another and share the stuff that's deep, the tough stuff, confess to one another, our needs and our shortcomings, lift up each other in prayer in ways that we just can't do in a big group. And you see that in scripture too. The book of Acts says the early church met daily at the temple so they could do praise and adoration and prayer. That's big church, but they also met in their homes, small church. I want to read again that passage that we've read before in this space that they may be for familiar to many of you here from Acts chapter 2. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. It says they did four things. Teaching, fellowship, they ate together, and they prayed together. And what happened to those? Or what did they experience, these early Christians of the church? Let's keep reading. It says, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's just such an amazing picture of what it could be like to be in community and faith with other believers caring for one another so that you know they enjoyed the goodwill of all i think that's one of the ways that we as a church will ensure that we will always be house of prayers if we are engaging in this sort of activity too of gathering together in smaller places and really doing life together and i think when we do i think the relationships can go to the whole next level we get to be real with each other. We learn to pray together by listening to each other, but we also learn to love by listening to each other. As Chris talked about a couple weeks ago, or last week, we actually get to be the, no, last week was me. Uh, <laughs> we get to be the answer to prayer sometimes in these situations because we are going deep into relationship with each other. It, it takes us past the phony plastic, everything's just fine, I'm doing well, how are you answers that we sometimes give at church. Because it's a place where we can actually do that. And when we do, God can do amazing things, just like he's done for 10 years here at ECC, and just like he did back in the book of Acts. I think it's so possible to read these stories from the Bible. I'd be like, man, that is so cool. I mean, but that's for a different time. I mean, that was a different thing, and, and God doesn't work that way anymore. I know that I have felt that. Well, I want to share a story that, that maybe you haven't heard um, and it happened 1,800 years after the book of Acts was written. And it happened right here in the United States. In 1857, the United States was in crisis. After years of prosperity from the gold rush, the bubble burst. 
And suddenly there wasn't money. And these, these railroads that had way over-speculated as they were building suddenly couldn't pay back the money that they owed, these loans that they had taken from banks who had way overextended these loans. And suddenly the banks were about to fail and the insurance companies were about to fail and the economy was about to fail. The stock market was about to crash. The, it was on the brink of collapse. And at that same time, the Dred Scott ruling came down from the Supreme Court, and this issue of slavery was dividing the nation politically. A polarizing president, James Buchanan, was in the office, and he was a northerner Republican who was also pro-slavery. And it tore the nation apart. In fact, many believed that he was going to lead the nation into a civil war as the South seceded from the Union. It was a nation on the brink of disaster. People had lost their faith in government, which was divided. They'd lost their faith in the economy, which was collapsing. They'd lost their faith in the church, which had grown intellectual and irrelevant and increasingly empty, but who was still preaching that the world was going to end any day now. The church was no hope for them. In New York City, there were tens of thousands of men who had lost their jobs as factories closed and commerce began to screech to a halt and alcoholism was at an all-time high and, and crime in the streets was beginning to rise. There was nowhere left to turn. It was called the Panic of 1857. And the ripples went around the world. It was, it was literally the very first ever international financial crisis in world history. But in New York, there was also a young businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere. His training was in business. He had no like, proper theological training whatsoever. But he walked the streets and he saw around him all of this hopelessness, this sense of doom. And he could sense overall anxiety in the world around him. So he decided he'd start a weekly prayer meeting during lunch hour so that businessmen could come and pray for one hour. The prayer meeting, he decided, would be held on Wednesdays at noon at Fulton Street in the heart of the financial district of Manhattan, right where the World Trade Centers were. He said that would be profitable for men engaged in active business to devote a portion of the time usually given to rest and refreshment at midday to devotional purposes. I feel like I should like, affect an accent when I say that. <laughs> so he found a location, he set a date, and began to spread the word that they would meet on Wednesday, September 23rd at noon, 1857. He even made out flyers and posters and he handed them out to everyone around. He, he canvassed the whole neighborhood for weeks getting ready for this date. And finally the big day came. At noon on September 23rd, he went up to that, that space that he had rented and he put a sign on the door saying prayer meeting here. And he went in and right at noon, he started to pray alone because no one had shown up. The first other prayer came about a half hour late and then a few more straggled in. And at the end of that first hour, he had a total of six men who had come to pray and they prayed. Nothing particularly special happened. There were no miracles. There were no healings. No one received the Holy Spirit. No one spoke in tongues. But they decided to do it again the next week. And the next week, 14 people showed up. And they started right at noon and they ended right at 1 p.m. And they decided to do it again the next week. And the next week, 23 people showed up. And the following week, 40. But then on October 10th, the stock market crashed. And financial, financial panic ensued and they decided to start meeting daily their numbers grew to 100 many of whom were unchurched and weren't the praying sort 
What had started as a group for businessmen quickly began to expand and women were coming and homeless people and jobless people and unemployed were coming to experience this just desperate to get in. Within a month, individuals who had attended these Fulton Street meetings started to bring them to their own churches and to their own neighborhoods to start their own groups of people that would simply pray for an hour. But these two became quickly full and Fulton Street continued to grow. By February, there were so many that they started meeting in a nearby Methodist church. One report said, by March 19th, a theater opened for prayer, and a half hour before it was to begin, people were turned away. Hundreds stood outside in the streets because they couldn't get inside. By the end of March, over 6,000 people met daily in prayer gatherings in New York City. Many churches added evening services for prayer. Soon, there were 150 united prayer meetings each day across Manhattan and Brooklyn. And soon, that wave extended beyond New York into into. Jersey and Chicago and around the entire United States. It's estimated that over the next 18 months, 1 million people came to Christ. 1 million out of a total at the time of 35 million in the entire United States came to faith over the next 18 months. That's 3% of the entire population of the United States came to faith as a result. They say 10,000 people a day were coming to faith in New York City alone during this period that stuff sounds biblical, right? Like that doesn't just happen, but it did. Because one man looked at a world that was coming apart and looked hopeless, looked out of control, and he said, what if we prayed? And God did amazing things. It's also interesting to note that between 1865 and 1900, more African Americans came to Christ than any other ethnicity. In a nation that was divided and torn apart by slavery, war, and politics, these houses of prayer became a place where freed slaves and free men found hope and love and experienced God. There was no distinction of race or denomination or gender. They were one before Christ in prayer. That had to have been unique in this world, in this country that was so torn apart and it made international news not because these groups put on amazing shows or they had these dynamic charismatic leaders it was nothing anywhere near that organized their meetings were largely led by the people and prayer was the only thing on the agenda they'd sing like a song and then pray for an hour and revival continued to spread to canada to england across europe into india and africa it was the start of one of the largest missionary movements in the history of the world Out of that one revival, organizations like the Evangelical Social Movement, the Bowery Mission, the Macaulay Street Mission, an organization called the Salvation Army, started out of that one revival. And out of that one revival, the world was changed as a result of one man who asked the question, what if we prayed? As a result of one small group who was willing to pray, to be a small church, a house of prayer. And so I asked that question to us. What if we prayed more, better, together, consciously? What, what might God do in this church? Yes, but, but in this world, Certainly it is in 1857, but if you spend any time at all in the news, we too are on the brink of crisis. And perhaps we too are on the brink of revival. 
of God doing amazing things in this community and in this world. In us and through us. We are on the brink perhaps of a new great awakening. Of God doing remarkable things through a small group of people who are willing to come together regularly to pray as a house of prayer. This Lent, uh, which starts Wednesday, we're going to try something new. Just for a season. But we believe this is one of the ways that we can, we can try, we can seek to be even more faithful and continuing to be a church where prayer is central. Every Friday morning, starting next Friday, we're simply going to open the office, um, probably around 6.30. I'll be there. I'll put on a pot of coffee. Um, I, I don't know if one will show up or six, or I'll be praying alone, and that's fine. But from 7 to 8, every morning during Lent, we're going to have a time of prayer together at the office, and everyone's welcome. I would love to have to find a better space, <laughs> but we'll start there. We'll start there together, going before God We will look together at a broken world where sometimes it feels like there's no hope. And together with the Holy Spirit who speaks for us and intercedes with us and gives us words to pray, we will together say, Abba, Father, hallowed be your name. And together we will implore God to bring his kingdom into this world as it is in heaven. We will together pray that that God would give us our daily bread and forgive us as we are learning to forgive each other. Together we will lift our voice and ask God to deliver us from evil. Ask God to help us to be the deliverers from evil. We will lift our voices together to declare these truths about who God is in the midst of brokenness. And together we will pray for those who can't. Because as I said before, there are people who are so engaged, so caught up, so ensnared by the hopelessness of this world that they simply can't. And we can speak truths, and God can speak through us these truths of who he is and give them a reason to sing. I want to invite the worship band to come up, and we're going to end our time together just simply listening to this song. It's called reason to sing and it's basically saying god i don't see you in this what are you doing and then attempts to answer that question let me pray for us as they get ready god thank you thank you that that we are able to come to you in this way that is remarkable thank you that when we do not have words to speak you speak to yourself for us That is remarkable. God, that that you would invite us to be involved in actually changing this world, in actively bringing your kingdom and partnering with you in this world. It's amazing that we might be agents of change and hope and light, answerers of prayer in your name. It's amazing. And yet, God, we confess as we conclude this series that Far too often, we just don't even use this resource. We don't even go to you. We would rather just continue to try on our own. God, we confess that and ask that you would be making us into a praying people, that you would move powerfully in us and through us in this world, drawing us to yourself, making us into your likeness so that the world might see you. 
that we would have the goodwill of all people around us as a result for your glory in your name. Amen.